Welcome to American Education FM, everybody. I'm Dr. Sean Brooks. All right, ladies and gentlemen, this is part four, and I believe this is going to be it for the Westerville City Schools Learn Together um, Black History Month video series. This video and presentation comes from a Dr. Lori Patton Davis, who is a professor and chair of the Department of Educational Studies at Ohio State University's College of Education and Human Ecology. Okay, a couple of things here first, just with the title of, um, well, her actual title. Teacher education departments, unfortunately, are changing their names. They're not remaining with the name teacher education. Many of them are changing them to educational studies. They're adding words like human ecology on top of those colleges or departments. Um, it's possible that this is also just its own department and it has nothing to do with teacher ed, although they probably work together uh, if they are in fact separate. One of the reasons too that educational studies departments exist is because Many individuals who are studying to be school teachers don't want to be school teachers as they're studying to be them. They start saying to themselves, you know what, I don't think I want to do this. And then about halfway through, they dip out of the teacher education program and they might slide into something like educational studies. The problem with educational studies departments is they don't set students up for a career in anything. They tend not to. They tend to just throw different subject matters at them and then the student graduates with a studies degree, quote-unquote, and then they can't use it anywhere because it's a useless degree in many cases. And that's been criticized, and that's been brought up countless times over the years. So that's not necessarily a new thing. I think it's, I think it's a shame that departments like that exist when they can't provide the college student with everything that they need to actually walk from college into an immediate career. Um, you know, education, teacher education departments are supposed to do that and they tend to do a pretty good job. The question then becomes how long do they stay an actual school teacher? But her presentation again here is titled, uh, When They Fail to See Us, Cultural Relevant Mentoring for Black Girls. So, I'm going to give you a brief overview. Her presentation is 30 minutes long, and then it looks like she takes about 37 minutes worth of questions. So with all of that aside, I'm going to go ahead and start playing this, uh, and then I'll just dip in from time to time. But again, listen to her word usage. Listen to the things that she says. And, uh, you know, there's just a lot. There's just a, a serious lack of knowledge about even basic current events here, which I think is really unfortunate. Okay. Um, because I can't really see the chat box, I'll ask you um, to maybe call out um, some names of the top five most influential black leaders in the U.S. Because I can't see you. So go ahead. Call them out. Michelle Obama. Mm -hmm. I say both of them. Both Obamas. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to go with Stacey Abrams. The, oh, Atlanta, the Atlanta mayor, I can't think, is that Stacy? Oh, Keisha Lance Bottoms? Keisha Lance Bottoms, Bottoms yeah. Paris. Paris. Okay. 
Anybody else? Oprah. Oprah Winfrey. Dr. Kendi. Okay. Ibram. Tyler Perry. Condoleezza Rice. LeBron James. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> uh, so I'll stop right there. Um, these are all, you know, wonderful names. And I've done this, uh, you know, asked this question in a lot of different presentations. And Okay, so as you can hear, first of all, every single one of them is a hard leftist. They're either a full-blown communist, they're paid by communists, or whatever it is. But these are all the individuals that they bring up. So you didn't hear these names. You didn't hear Candace Owens. You didn't hear Burgess Owens, Thomas Sowell, Diamond and Silk, the late Walter Williams, Carol Swain. You didn't hear any of these names. There's also Clarence Thomas, of course. There's Larry Elder, uh, Alan West, Ben Carson, Sheriff David Clark. See, they're only interested in individuals who are on the left. They're not interested in the broad spectrum, and that should give them away. And there are countless others as well, because they're Americans. Again, that's it's really telling and really indicative of not just the, the people who answered the question, but the actual individual here giving the presentation, because they wouldn't have said these names either. And yet she's making the larger point consistently that, well, black children don't have role models. Yes, they do. They have role models all of the time. And they don't have to be of the same race or of the same gender to be a role model. That's ridiculous. That, 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 that doesn't have to happen. That doesn't have to be the case. In fact, because of the strength and power of the nuclear family, one's role models should be one's parents. That's, that's, that's who the real role models in, in someone's life should be. It should be their parents, their biological father and their biological mother, or their biological grandparents, or even an aunt or, or an uncle or whatever it is. But it starts inside of the actual home, usually with the biological parents. So I'm going to continue here. Here we go. People don't know that the presentation is going to be on black girls or black women. The names are primarily black men, right? Uh, and so it is not uncommon to hear names like Cornell West, Michael Eric Dyson, or LeBron James, um, Barack Obama. Um, and part of why I always ask this question is to get a feel for the room and how people are I guess, reading Black women um, in our larger uh, society. Um, but nine times out of 10, it's usually, if, if, it, if this was just, I don't know, a, a presentation about, I don't know, Black history, or um, uh, I was, you know, looking at, you know, educators, a lot of times the names are typically Black men, right? And, um, and, and then when I ask people to be gender specific, that's when I might get Michelle Obama or Kamala Harris or, or Oprah Winfrey. But most times they're not the first names to uh, come to mind um, for people when I ask the question.
Um, and for me, part of that has to do with uh, the invisibility uh, that faces Black women. So for today's presentation, I'm going to talk about the sociopolitical context for Black women and girls, um, and then I'll focus more on the status of Black girls and the need for culturally relevant mentoring, and then some key considerations for mentoring programs and initiatives that center Black girls. Um, I'll offer a couple of examples that um, I found uh, online. My graduate student helped me to find some of these, and then I'll open the floor for Q&A. Um, so before even talking about Black girls, I always think it's so important to provide the context for how they, you know, operate within our society. And oftentimes when we think about Black women uh, and girls uh, and their experiences, uh, they're often viewed through these stereotypes that are unsettling. And many of the common ones might be uh, look, being considered, you know, the mammy, the, the woman who she's unattractive, she, you know, doesn't have a partner, and her whole goal in life is to take care of other people. So she takes care of other people, other people's children, um, does not take care of herself. Um, sapphire, uh, so the woman, the loud, sassy, neck rolling, um, woman, you know, cursing, who's disrespectful, all of these, you know, different things. Uh, Jezebel, who is, you know, sexually active, using her body to get the attention of people, um, using people, um, the superwoman, and I think oftentimes people look at the superwoman as a more positive um, uh, uh, projection onto black women, but it's not, but a superwoman who, you know, she doesn't feel anything. She's working towards a goal. She can do all of these different things um, and, you know, not get tired or not be, uh, she's almost invulnerable. Um, and then, you know, in my uh, work over the last several years in reading um, how scholars have um uh, constructed Black women in their work. Uh, there's one author who talks about Black, he, he poses the question around whether or not Black women are the new model minority. And he's basing this comparison off of um, the, the model minority myth that's often been projected onto uh, Asian and Asian American uh, uh, ethnic groups, particularly uh, Chinese and Japanese uh, folks. And so when you think about a new model minority, they become the uh, uh, exception, right? Not the rule. And others within their population group should be looking to them for how, you know, they should behave or how um, they should carry themselves. This is really interesting because she's making she's making a lot of mistakes here. Uh, I'm going to do my best to, to to break this down. She's almost saying it a little. Too, she's saying these things almost too fast to even bring up. But she's first of all blaming culture for stereotyping black girls. Okay, first of all, culture doesn't do that. People do that. What cultures do, and by culture, she's not really referring to actual American history or American culture per se. She's referring to television, which is, again, stands for tell a vision. It doesn't stand for tell the truth. It stands for television, tell a vision. So what she's doing is, is she's saying, well, on television, you're likely to see these kinds of black women, or you're likely to see these kinds of people on TV. TV is a lie. It's a lie. 
And unfortunately, a lot of people believe that lie. And then they live their lives believing those lies, or they try to behave a particular way because they see it on television and then they think to themselves, well, I have to behave that way or that's how maybe I'll get on TV or that's how I'll make money or that's how I'll get attention. All of that cultural stuff, I might add, is driven by the left in this country. The the, the very design of the television was driven by communists and fascists. That's a fact. That's, That's where the TV came from. The CIA developed the television. So they want to show you particular messages, not moral ones necessarily, clearly not the case on TV, but they want to show you other things that paint a picture for them that works for their own communistic needs. And so, again, it, it really is alarming, but the last thing that she mentions here is something that she refers to as black girl magic. And I had to look this up because I had no idea what it was, and wouldn't you know, it's remarkably insulting, but she thinks it's a positive thing. So here's the definition, and this is just off of Wikipedia. Black Girl Magic. Black Girl Magic is a movement that was popularized by Kashawn Thompson in 2013. The concept was born as a way to celebrate the beauty, power, and resilience of black women, as described by Julie Wilson from Huffington Post, and to congratulate black women on their accomplishments. First of all, look at the name itself. Uh, uh, celebrating someone's accomplishments is great. I don't care what your race is. I don't care what your gender is. doesn't matter. Congratulations. You did something. Good for you. That goes for everybody. But they call it black girl magic. As if to say, a black girl who succeeds, it's magic. It's a magic trick. That's the really insulting part about the very name. And again, they they bolster it like it's a positive thing. No, it isn't. You're, you're, you're actually doing the thing that you're claiming you're not doing. You claim to be helping black girls, but you're calling their accomplishments magic. I'm sorry. I think it's remarkably insulting. It's incredibly insulting. It's poor word usage. Um, it's really, it's really awful. And now, apparently, I'm, I'm just continuing to scroll here on the internet as I say this, but it looks like there are black girl magic museums that are filled with, again, women who, black women who accomplish things. I'm fine with that. That doesn't bother me. Just don't call it magic. Don't call it black girl magic. You can call it. Black American Museum. You can call it an American museum, heaven forbid, because we're all Americans. So why not just call it an American museum and you just include, again, influential people throughout this time, but try not to pick criminals. Try not to pick people that were used or abused by the system and people who were criminals, but people who were actually moral human beings. Again, Candace Owens, Thomas Sowell, Walter Williams, Carol Swain. These are good people. These are good people. You also heard him mention Condoleezza Rice. Because that's a, you know, I, I don't know, I guess that's a common go-to. But do people really know who Condoleezza Rice is? Do they know where she came from? Where was, where was Condoleezza Rice on 9-11? What role did she have on 9-11? I've read a lot of stuff about Condoleezza Rice. I'm going to tell you something. Uh, I'm not a fan. I'm just not a fan. I'm going to leave it at that, but 
Yeah, not a fan. So she can sit on all the boards she wants. She can be involved with this group or that group or blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, none of that matters. What kind of people are they? Are, are they criminals? Are they painting a picture for the public, but then behind closed doors doing some of the most heinous things humanly possible? Yes. Yes, that's highly possible. And that goes with a lot of people. So that's why people need to be very careful about the word role model. Like I said earlier, your role models should be your parents, and your parents are hopefully ethical human beings. If they aren't, then you need to look for another role model. But it doesn't, again, have to be somebody of your gender or somebody of your race in order for them to be an effective role model. You can look up to just about anybody. All right, let's continue here with this. Some of the things they found just with the 11 to 15 um, age group, 66% attend public schools. They have GP at 40% have GPAs of 3.1 higher. Um, a little under half report being bullied at school. More than half have some form of leadership experience and more than half struggle with feelings of depression and anxiety. And if you look at the 16 to 22 age group, the, uh, uh, rate of bullying, you know, is still over 50%. There's uh, an exponential uh, jump in terms of the 70, uh, almost 72% who struggle with feelings of depression and anxiety. And you couple these things with, you know, many of them having to work. Um, a large uh, a majority of them are in schools. Um, and 23% have experienced homelessness. Among all the age groups, 70% have received detention, suspension, or expulsion from schools, and 60% live in single mother households. Now, they have a, a low absenteeism, which I think is important. So they're actually in school, right? Um, uh, but um, uh, a lot of, uh, among the respondents for uh, this study, the average adverse child, uh, childhood experiences score was three. Um, but about 40% of girls had higher scores, right? And what made them happy, their sources of happiness were uh, music, family, and friends. School was the lowest voted item, you know, after nothing. So I think that's really telling um, that they're in school, right? <laughs> um, but there isn't anything about their experiences that makes them pick school as a top choice and what brings happiness to them. So I think as educators, we have to think about what environments are we uh, creating and constructing for, for Black girls to not just survive, but to actually thrive and enjoy learning, right? Enjoy uh, their educational experiences. So it's almost as if she was implying that school should just be done away with completely because black girls tend to not pick school as something that they enjoy. Well, again, instilling a love of learning comes from the family. If, if you have parents who read, you're more likely to have children who read, and then they grow up and then they read in front of their children if they have children, and then other people see them reading, and then so on and so on and so on down the generational line and throughout the family tree. That's, that's one of those things that just occurs. The same thing is true with, again, tr uh, you know, going to college, which is what she brings up a little bit later. And she says less and less black girls are wanting to go to college. Well, why is that the case? It's not because of the educational system. It's because of the lack of the family. 
the family isn't there promoting that as a viable option, which it is a viable option, I might add. I walked into once, a, again, a, I told this story kind of briefly maybe in the past, but I walked into a charter school in Columbus, or in uh, Cleveland rather, Cleveland, Ohio, and they um, almost all of the graduates and almost all of the students in the building were, were black Americans, and almost all of them went to college. They went to college because, again, their grades were high. The school was doing whatever they could, ethically or unethically, to raise their grades. And then they would enroll them in college because colleges have these diversity quotas that they do have to hit. And they, and they want to recruit uh, black Americans, which is, which is great. I have nothing against that at all. The, the, the issue, though, becomes how long do they stay in college and do they graduate once they're in college? And the answer overwhelmingly is no, they don't. They tend to drop out for a variety of reasons. The scholarship only gives them so much. Um, it ends up being harder than they thought. It's a variety of a variety of reasons. And then they say to themselves, well, I could just as easily work or you know, find a full-time job and start making money instead of stay here and, and do all of this reading and writing and whatever. And that's understandable for, you know, that's just understandable. So it's a circumstance thing. It's a how are you raised thing. It's a nuclear family thing. But um, just saying, well, people just ignore black women or black girls, that's just not true. To be honest with, with presentations like this, there's just a lot of psychological projecting taking place. These, you know, th this presenter herself is is living her life through this presentation. She's essentially saying, "All of this happened to me. I'm going to make a living out of this, and now I'm going to project what I experienced as a child onto the entire world and make it sound like it's the world's problem and it's everybody's problem, so that someday it's no one's problem." I, I really think that that's very misleading. Um, I'm not sure it's accurate at all. I mean, it's clearly accurate with, with her. Um, she's given no indication. She hasn't said anything about how she was raised. That might come up a little bit later. But she's a successful individual by, by all uh, measures thus far. I mean... She believes things that aren't real, which is too bad, but she ha she either has an EDD or a PhD. She has degrees. Doesn't mean that her instruction was was effective or not, but she works at Ohio State University. I'm sure she makes plenty of money. I'm sure she's doing fine financially. But we're going to get into the Q&A here because I think this is going to be interesting. It looks like she only receives a few questions. Uh, and what I'm going to do is, is I'm going to let the person ask the question and then I'm going to answer it. And I'm going to answer it before she does, and then you're going to hear her answer after mine. So here we go. Or their comments. So I have a question. Um, so on a daily basis, how do we help black girls to feel seen in our classrooms, um, in the hallways? Because I always stand outside my door and like welcome the students into my room. How do we help to make them feel seen? How do you help them? How do you make them feel seen? First of all, you just teach human beings. That's it. It's not difficult. It's not hard. You just teach human beings. You teach your subject. Everybody is in the room hearing it. 
They're hearing, hopefully, factual content coming from you. They're listening to it. And then that's it. Game over. That's the job of an educator. The job of the teacher is to teach content factually, investigate, make sure that they're teaching the truth about particular things and not propaganda, and then bring that factual information to the entire room, regardless of who is in the room. It doesn't matter if it's adults or children. It doesn't matter if they're black or white. It doesn't matter if they're boys or girls. You don't teach skin color and you don't teach gender. You teach human beings. That's my answer. It's a short answer. It's a quick answer. That's my answer. Because what you don't do, I'm going to bloviate here for a moment or just ramble on here for a second, but what you don't do is you don't single out people because of their gender or their race or whatever. You don't say, oh, well, I've, I've called on, which you're going to hear from her answer in a second. She says, basically, most teachers just call on boys. And they'll just call on boys, and they'll call on boys whether they raise their hands or not. But they don't call on girls, typically, and they typically don't call on uh, black girls especially. So, first of all, that's ridiculous. No school teacher should be should be singling out any student and saying, hey, you, what's the answer to this question that I just asked? Or pointing at him and saying, tell me what you think about this. That's not the job of a school teacher. It's an old stupid habit that existed back you know, in the 90s, 80s, 70s, and earlier where a teacher would single out a student and say, you know, you tell me about this now. No one does that anymore. No effective educator does that. The, the educator teaches the subject, and then if, and, and if a student raises their hand and asks a question or, or, or makes a comment of some kind, how that teacher addresses that student in that one moment is going to be very telling as to whether or not anybody participates in that class ever again. If that teacher is short with that student, if that teacher um, is ill-tempered in any way, or sarcastic or makes fun of their question or whatever, then you're going to have a serious problem and people just aren't going, to want to, aren't going to want to participate in your classroom. But what you don't do is you don't single out black girls, which is what she starts to imply here in just a minute, And if she doesn't outright say it, that they need to call on black girls and see what black girls think about what, what's being taught in the class in front of the entire class. You don't want to do that. That's a huge mistake. You're going to embarrass people. You're going to get students to not like you. And it's going to look like your virtue signaling, which is not a good thing either. It's, it just, it really looks disingenuous. It really looks pathetic. And it's, uh, it's, it's a colossal error. But listen to her answer. You know, it, it may seem hard, but I think, think about how you would want to be saying. You know, um, a, a lot of the ways that I do it, and I'm um, more post-secondary working with um, girls who are wanting to, you know, be in college and, you know, get through uh, their four years successfully, but making people see what you're doing is good by, you know, welcoming each student into the classroom and those sorts of things. But how do Black girls show up in the curriculum, you know, um, 
if you're teaching history, how do black women's experiences show up in history or, you know, how do they show up in social studies? Uh, I think that I, I can't stress you enough how important it is that people see themselves reflected in the curriculum. Um, and that's really a part of uh, the, the larger, I guess, literature on culturally relevant pedagogy. So being able to see yourself in the literature. Other ways of being seen is having, you know, teachers who look like you or guest speakers who look like you. Um, and even if it's not, um, you know, specifically, you know, pertaining, I guess, to black girls, some of the issues that they face might apply to other girls. So how do those particular, you know, issues, concerns or challenges show up in what you're teaching? Um, you know, in music class, it's been meaningful for my children to not just learn classical, right? I want them to learn classical, but I want them to learn R&B too, right? I want them to learn Motown. And I've, I've been really appreciative of teachers who have taken the time to study and think about all of the different cultural groups represented in their classrooms and to do things that are purposeful um, to, to, to make them feel seen. Um, one thing that teachers often do, and it I think this kind of goes, I don't know how much work you all have done around implicit bias, but when teachers call on students, they're less likely to call on black girls. Um, they're actually less likely to call on girls, period. Um, and so I, you know, even in my own classrooms, I do, I take turns, right, to make sure that I am not always calling on, uh, uh, you know, uh, the males in my classroom that I am you know, going back and forth, you know, and students already know, you know, <laughs> so there isn't this uh, feeling that somebody is being left out of the conversation. Those are just some of the ways. I mean, and they're not unique per se. I just think um, uh, you, it, you have to be really purposeful. Purposeful. No, you don't. You don't have to be purposeful. All you have to do is you call on students who have their hands raised. It's really that simple. It's not a difficult game. You don't call on people who don't have their hands raised. Because, again, one of the biggest mistakes in a classroom setting is, is for someone to believe, or anybody, from the outside looking in, saying to themselves, well, they're not raising their hands, so they're not engaged. They're not asking questions, so they're not engaged. No, every student in a classroom is engaged when the teacher is engaged. If the teacher is engaged in teaching the subject and has control of the room, everybody in the room is engaged. So e even the issue of engagement is not an issue if the teacher knows what they're doing. But you don't just randomly call on people. It's, ri <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's just not something that happens. You don't, you don't close your eyes, wave your finger in front of you, and then just randomly select a student. You, you don't do that. And you certainly don't pick people out because of their race or their gender. That's outrageous. Wow. Wanna, oh, oh sorry. Ahead. No, go ahead. I was just going to say that the some of those statistics, in particular the assault statistics, um, scarred me. And um, I just was thinking that we need to be doing more in terms of providing SEL support mm -hmm. as well as curricular support. Mm -hmm. um, so that's all. 
I think so. And, and you know, so S- SEO isn't my area. Um, and I think because because I'm at Ohio State, right, and a department chair, I have heard a lot of talk about um, SEL being a really good thing. And now there is more uh, not pushback against it, but um, how it's being conceptualized in a way uh, where SEL is somehow becoming uh, focused on white white children. Um, I'm still learning about it. But again, as I noted before, I think with anything, how we purposefully serve particular populations is important. So if we're going to do social emotional learning, what does that look like for a black girl? Uh, Good Lord. Social emotional learning is communistic in its design. We were warned about it a long time ago, decades ago decades ago. It's a huge mistake. It has nothing to do with reading, writing, and arithmetic. It is designed purposefully to get students to all act and behave the same all of the time. That's communism. Stand here, say this, walk here, do this, don't do anything outside of this barrier kind of thing. That everybody should behave exactly the same. That's the entire framework of social-emotional learning. It's not the job of the school teacher to play counselor, and it's not the job of the school teacher to play parent either. I understand that that's a hard stance for some to hear, but it's the truth. It's not their job to do that. It doesn't mean that they can't be caring and compassionate. You should be a caring and compassionate school teacher. Anybody should be. But you don't do that, and you don't inject the games and the gimmicks and the nonsense that, it, that is involved with social-emotional learning because it's insulting. It's remarkably insulting. And it's unfair, and it's unethical, and there's a lot of problems with it. But again, if she says anything to the, you know, if she says anything contrary to that, she doesn't know what she's talking about, which is, you know, too bad. But she even admitted it, that she doesn't know a whole lot about it, which is true. Um, but neither did the teacher who was asking the question or whoever it was that was asking the question, well, we need more social emotional learning. No, we don't. We need more literacy. We need more people reading, writing, and learning how to speak English fluently and clearly and concisely. That's what we need. We don't need more games and gimmicks. Just your, here, I'll put my video on so it doesn't look weird. (laughs) Um, Oops, there we go. So along with that, just what you were saying with the, you know, the adultification, that was huge, you know, and I think that's true. And so that would be a whole SEL, you know, mm-hmm. aspect of it that, hey, why aren't you growing up? You should be able to take care of this, blah, 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 you know, have all this responsibility where we might not do that with the white students. We might be like, oh, honey, let me help you, you know, let's, you know, whatever. So that, you know, if that is ever created, I think that, that whole factor, I never would have thought about that. But I can I can totally see that. We're like, yes, you do have, you know, strong black women who take care of their families and they're, they're you know, the older sisters are taking care of, you know, the younger siblings or whatever. And, you know, we don't realize that that carries on to every aspect of their life or whatever. So to me, that's stressful right there. I mean, these kids mm-hmm. that are trying to do remote learning and all this stuff, well, they may have other responsibilities put on them or, you know, whatever. So it's. That's good stuff. Thank you for sharing that. 
I always think about that movie, and I watch. Uh, I, I, I love film. Um, uh, I think it's Beasts of the Southern Wild, right? It was about uh, New Orleans around the time of Hurricane Katrina, and it was when uh, I think uh, Kavanjane uh, Wallace you know, was the main character or whatever, and she was six, right? She's taking care of a you know a sick father. There is no mother around, and I they had a scene of her, you know trying to cook food and do all of these things to run this house. And I couldn't imagine doing that at six years old. I, just, I simply could not. But that is a reality and perhaps not that deep. I don't know. But I, I know for many Black girls, that's a reality or this expectation of having to, you know, take care of and, you know, pitch in. And those things are important, right? Um, it does uh, instill you with certain, you know, uh, responsibilities, but those responsibilities should not steal your girlhood, right? You should still be able to actually live and operate as a girl. You should. In a perfect world. Sure. In a perfect world. The the teacher who was asking the questions, there was a lot of whatevers in, in, in what she was saying, and, you know, whatever and, and whatever. Again, when a person says the word whatever at the end of a sentence, they don't know what they were just saying in that previous sentence. They have no idea what they were just talking about. The, the same is true with the speaker here and the presenter. She's ending, ending her sentences with the word right, with a question mark. Right? Right? She's looking for affirmation because she doesn't even know what she's saying. She's trying to recall something or she's, she's trying to act like she knows uh, about a particular subject and she doesn't. I just, I just feel like sometimes with these presentations where they're singling out a race or they're singling out a gender, they're trying to make it sound as if every single human being has to have the exact same utopian life. And that's not the way that life works. And that right there, I think, is one of the, one of the largest mistakes that gets made, is that they just assume that... Everybody is supposed to quote unquote just have a childhood or why can't they all just go to college or why can't everybody just get a great job and make a ton of money or why can't everybody just do because that's life. That's just life. No one said it would be fair. No one said it would be easy, but that's just life sometimes. And it's not unique to a particular race and it's not unique to a particular gender. Life is for anybody who's living it. But again, that's the division that, that, that people are seeking here, is they're consistently trying to seek division between genders and between race and between cultures in the interest of attaining what? Something that cannot be attained, and it shouldn't, which is communism, where everybody has the same all the time. That's ridiculous. I think it was Thomas Jefferson who said, the greatest inequality is the equal treatment of unequal people. Think about that for a minute. That's not based on race. He didn't say that based on race. It means don't give, you know, don't give murderers a second chance. Don't give rapists a second chance. You would give a child a second chance if they made a mistake, if they didn't do something correctly. But we can't, we can't give criminals second chances. That's essentially what that means. It means don't make the same mistake twice with a person who's consistently making mistakes. It does drag on a little bit some, uh, with some of these questions, but there's a question that came up later on, which is interesting. And someone asked the question about trying to get uh, black students into more honors classes. And 
she says they're very capable and there's lots of them that are achieving, you know, just within the mainstream courses. So what do we do to get them into honors courses and, and how do we encourage them to get into honors courses? And then she, uh, the, the professor responds by saying, well, they have to know that it's an option, first of all. And then she just kind of rambles on a little bit. Beyond that, first of all, they know that it's an option. They just aren't asking or they don't care, um, which is highly likely. Again, the thing that they're failing to take into account is that maybe some students just don't want to do particular things. See, they're making wide brushstrokes here by assuming that all black girls want to do this or all white girls want to do this or all students want to do this or all males want to do this. That's not true. That's just not true. Individuals want to do individual things. Some people want to take honors classes. Some people don't. Some people would rather get straight A's in, you know, get A's, B's, and C's in a regular course and not even have to worry about honors classes. Maybe that's just their opinion. Maybe that's just their choice. That's what they want to do. It doesn't mean that they have to be in some honors class because some teacher motivated them to be in an honors class. If you're really an effective educator, you're going to tell all your students the truth about everything all the time. You're not going to select out particular students and then sort of give them a little bit more attention as, as opposed to somebody else. Why not just tell the entire room since you've, all, you know, since you've got them all in there anyway? Why not just tell the entire room the truth from the start and just let everybody hear it all at once? Hey, you're in here. This is a mainstream course. If you want to be in an honors course, here's how you enroll. Here's the paperwork, blah, blah, blah. You know, that's how that gets handled. Or, heaven forbid, they actually have a, a parent-teacher conference. And, you you know, maybe you just call up the parents or you email the parent or whoever it is that's in the family. And you say, hey, look, this particular student has a lot of potential. Just wanted to let you know if they want to be in honors courses, here's the paperwork. If they're interested in taking it and filling it out, great. If they don't want to do it, then they don't want to do it and you can't make them. You can offer it to them and educators should. Again, effective educators do this anyway. The simple fact that she's asking that question implies that she hasn't even told her entire class what's available to them if they want it. In fact, what's really cool is she actually, the presenter actually does admit that and she does say that. She ends up saying that if there if there isn't a positive message around taking an honors course or what's the benefit or what's the point. If it doesn't lead to something else, then then who cares? What you know, it doesn't even matter. And she and she's right. She's absolutely right. If a student is looking at an honors course and they're going, wait a minute, I gotta do ten times the work and I gotta do whatever and I, and I might not get an A or a B, but I might get a C or a D in that class. Why would I take that course when I can just take this course that I'm currently in and I'm currently being successful and I'm currently learning? Why not just continue to do that? So She's right in that regard. There's no doubt about it. If you don't hook something positive to it, what's the point? This next question that this person asks is very, very interesting. In fact, it's it's a it's a perfect comment. So I'm just gonna I'm just gonna play it and I'm gonna dip in because it highlights a huge problem and sort of the sick underbelly and the corrupt underbelly that does exist with graduating students who cannot read and write and then throwing them into college and then all of a sudden they're in college and then everybody wonders why they drop out. So give this a listen. Things that I do in my class, I uh, teach middle school in Westerville. I used to teach at Columbus uh, State and mm -hmm. I now teach 
uh, middle school. And uh, the program I taught there was in their developmental ed program. And so I have brought a lot of former students' stories with their permission, some of them in essay form that I allowed asked them to give me of uh, what they would have said to themselves when they were in junior high or middle school. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I stressed to my students that, that that program, which is a wonderful program at Columbus State, gets between six and 8,000 students every fall who have a high school diploma but cannot read and write above a seventh grade level. I mean, that is the function of the department. Okay. And that at that point, they are then paying, you know, hundreds, sometimes thousands of dollars for uh, for education that you know they had available to them in middle school and high school, and so we talk about those things. And we also I have them read an article at the beginning of the year about just income differences between people who graduate from high school, people who don't graduate from high school. Um, we talk about the fact that you know we can make predictions based on kids' literacy levels as early as third grade how likely they are to be incarcerated. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they look at you like, what? And they say, well, yeah, let's think about this. You know, if your reading and writing skills limit the choices you have, you know, and they're, they're tough discussions, but I've, I find the kids are really receptive to them. They, you know, like most middle schoolers, they appreciate being spoken to like adults. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and for many of them, you know, we, we, were, we were talking about the fact that a lot of our kids are coming in to seventh grade at third and fourth grade reading levels. It's relevant. Mm-hmm. They know that those are their levels because, you know, they're sharing testing information. And so, I, you know, again, I don't know um, what the, the overall impact is, but it's a conversation that I do try to have with them. Um, the other conversation that I have that does not seem to be very popular <laughs> is the idea that, you know, academic excellence translates into money in terms of college. So, I mean, I I grew up in welfare. So my ticket to college was that my my family had nothing. But for a lot of kids, like my kids now, who do have something, um, you know, going into college with college credits from high school, my daughter got $35,000 worth of classes. Mm-hmm. for her program at Westerville South. Um, and again, it's not going to resonate with a lot of 12-year-olds, but there are always a couple that are like, really? Like, they're already, we're already, we can do college classes over there before high school? And so I, I, I wholeheartedly agree. It can never be too early. Never be too early. Because you always have the student, and this one breaks my heart, and then I'll stop talking. I was uh, had to go into the ER this summer for just an injury, and out of the exam room came one of my former students. And so she greeted me. We were talking. And uh, I said, she's about 2018. I said, How, what are you doing? She goes, oh, I'm going to be an OBGYN. I said, that's fantastic. I'm like, she goes, you have to go to college for that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it was a genuine question. No one had ever had the conversation with her. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, so I said, yes, you do. And I said, she goes, how many years do I have to go? And I said, well, I think if it's something that's, you know, you're really interested in, you should look into it and I'm happy to help you. And she said, yeah, but how many years? <laughs> I said, well, it was a lot of years. And she's like, well, I'm just not that smart for that. And I said, well, you know, talk to me. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, you know, for every kid that we do get through, there are ones that say, do I have to go to college to be a doctor? You know, and it's because no one's ever had the conversation. So anyway. And that's an example of an effective educator right there. I mean, she, she, 
she clearly described having serious adult conversations with her students about careers and their education and how long they have to be in school and a number of different things. And that's not something that has to necessarily be piecemeal. It's not something that has to be drawn out over the course of time. You can, you can tell people straight up, tell them the truth straight out of the gate. It may be difficult for them to hear at first, and it may scare them at first, but the more it resonates with them over the course of time and they have the whole truth right from the start, the more, the more likely they are to, um, to, to make a more mature decision down the line as to whether or not they actually want to do it. So... I don't know. It's an interesting, you know, a lot of these presentations throughout this uh, this Black History Month thing were were really problematic. There were, a, you know, there there were some good parts. There were there was the occasional highlight, but there's there's an awful lot of finger pointing, and there's an awful lot of blaming, and it's and it's false blaming, and it's propaganda, and it's it's really really a problem. Because again, when we point fingers, there's three pointing right back at us. So the business of catering to a particular gender or catering to a particular race, skin color, culture, whatever it is, that's a huge mistake. That's a massive mistake. At the end of the day, everybody is a human being. And all human beings deserve the right to be told the truth from a very knowledgeable human being or multiple human beings who investigate what that truth is and then you pass that on to students or minors or whoever it is. That, uh, that you're trying to mentor, you're trying to educate. And that's the role of an educator. That's the job. The job is to not lie to them and say, well, we fudged your grades in high school. Now we're going to get you into college. And then they get to college and they can't read and write. And then they end up dropping out because they can't handle the coursework. That's, that's not helping anybody. That's actually lying to people. That's misleading them. It's lying and it's very problematic. So just to wrap this up, I'm going to say this, that if you're, if you're catering to a particular race or you're favoring a particular race or a gender, then you're, you're doing yourself a disservice and everybody else in the room a disservice. The fact is, is if you're a school teacher and you have students, teach them all equally. Raise, I've said this before, just raise the bar equally for everybody. And everybody will end up jumping a whole lot higher than they thought they ever could if you just raise it equally for everybody and you have high expectations for everybody. It, it won't put people down. It won't discourage people. It doesn't do that. All of that is just more propaganda and more lies because you don't teach 25, 30 different lessons to 30 different students. That's just not the way that it works. You teach the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but, and you've got to figure out what that is first before you start teaching it. And then you can help any student along the way, regardless of who they are or where they come from. Thank you for listening to American Education FM. Don't forget to check out AmericanEducationFM.com, where you can make a small donation or even email us and be a guest on the podcast. Until next time, never stop learning, never stop reading, and never stop unlearning. Thanks for listening, and God bless.